Well, thank you, Tyler, and good morning to you. And take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we are continuing our study in the life of David. And if you've been with us uh, through this study, you know that David is now the king of Israel. He has been anointed king. Saul and his sons have died. And uh, if you remember last Sunday... We saw where God told David no. David wanted to build a a great temple for the Lord. And the Lord said, no, you're not going to do that, David. Uh, But I am going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant uh, that your your name will go forever. Your house and your lineage will rule over the house of Israel forever. And actually, Jesus is part of the fulfillment of that covenant that the Lord made with David. And you and I are sons and daughters of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And of course, he is our king. And although the devil is having a field day on the earth right now, the devil is is in essence running the show down here. He's got freedom to wreak havoc on this earth. But one day, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus does return, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and He will literally begin to reign on this earth, again, further fulfilling that promise and that covenant that God made with David. Well, if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 8, you'll find that David turns to the borders of Israel now that he's king, and in a series of battles, he defeats many of Israel's arch enemies, the Philistines and the Moabites and others that have plagued Israel for years. In a series of battles, David subjugates those people. So now there's peace on the borders of Israel. David has defeated uh, Israel's enemies. And David is sitting in his palace. And he begins to think about his old friend, Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan was Saul's son. And You remember Jonathan lost his life in battle against the Philistines along with his father and two of his brothers. And David is sitting there and and he's comfortable now in the palace. Things are kind of quieted down. He's, He's achieved a lot of victories. And he begins to think about Jonathan. And he begins to wonder, is there anybody left of Jonathan's family that I can show a kindness to? And here in this story of Jesus reaching out to one of Jonathan's sons, we see a beautiful picture of God's grace. Remember I told you when we began this study that it's very important as you go through the Old Testament that you remember that the Bible teaches us that all of the stories in the Old Testament are written for our instruction. And none other than Jesus Himself used stories in the Old Testament to make a point. Remember when Jesus was talking about His resurrection? Now His disciples didn't know He was talking about His resurrection. But He said, As Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days before He comes back. And of course the disciples, that just kind of went over their head until after Jesus had been resurrected and they remembered Jesus said that. So Jesus took the story of Jonah and use that story as a picture of a spiritual truth. And remember, I I said that as we began. All through the Old Testament, we see physical stories about things that happen, but they're more than simply physical stories. Often they represent an eternal spiritual truth. And such is the case in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of a crippled 
boy or a crippled man by now by the name of I knew I would stumble it's more than two syllables Mephibosheth a crippled man by the name of Mephibosheth we're going to see his story and yes it is a story about him and about David's love and promise that he made to Mephibosheth's father Jonathan but it is more than that we're going to see that it is a beautiful picture of the grace of God and how God reaches out to you and I. And before we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's just get introduced to Mephibosheth. And if you can get introduced to him over in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and uh, we find out who he is and, and why he's crippled. Remember that uh, Jezreel was the battle where Saul and his three sons died. And the Bible says that in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And that was the news that they had been killed in battle. So his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame and his name was Mephibosheth. So we see how Mephibosheth became a crippled boy when his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul was killed in battle. The word got back to Jerusalem and the nurse who was taking care of the little five-year-old boy, the babysitter if you will, she didn't know what was going to happen. The king's dead. Jonathan's dead. Uh, she knew there was going to be upheaval. And as so often happened in the ancient world, she was afraid that whoever took charge was going to look at this little boy as perhaps an heir or a competition to the throne. And so she said, I better get out of here and I better hide this child else he'll be killed. And she starts running, trying to escape. And somehow she stumbles and falls. And somehow when uh, she falls with that child, he is injured in some way which causes him to be crippled in his feet. So that's when he was five years old. His father was killed in battle and he grows up out in the boondocks, if you will, hiding, trying to stay under the radar, hoping that nobody looks at him as a threat and nobody decides to kill him. So David here in chapter 9 verse 1, he says, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, David is there and he says, I want to find somebody of the house of Saul, somebody that I might show a kindness to for the house for Jonathan's sake. He said so. Mephibosheth is not knocking on the door saying, you know, can you help a poor man out? You know, can you help a guy out? I, I need some help here, king. He's basically hiding somewhere. He's somewhere, you know, tending to his own business. But David the king decides, I'm going to go in search of someone that I may bestow some kindness upon because of the house of Saul. And there's the first comparison that you and I see in this Old Testament story to the New Testament principle, the spiritual truth of grace. And that truth is that grace always seeks us out. We don't seek grace. Grace seeks us. David says, I'm going to find someone that I may, that I may bestow kindness upon. Now, why does grace seek us? 
Why does grace seek us? Well, why did David seek Jonathan? Or why did David seek out a child of Jonathan? Well, first of all, it was because of a promise that David made. If you go back and you look in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is talking to Jonathan. And this, to give you the background of the story, Jonathan, uh, by that time Saul was trying to kill David. And Jonathan got wind of a plot that his father had against David. He was going to kill him. So Jonathan says, I've got to warn David. So David, Jonathan goes out and he meets David and he warns him about the plot. And while they're talking, uh, Jonathan uh, says this. He says, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now, uh, language gets a little, a little confusing there, but basically what Jonathan asked David to do is, I want you to remember my descendants. I know that I'm not going to be king, although that's the way the succession is, but I know God is going to make you king. And I'm okay with that, but I want you to make a covenant with me that you will look after my descendants after I'm gone and you are king. And they make a covenant. David makes a promise, I will look after your descendants, Jonathan. But not only did David promise Jonathan, but David promised Saul. If you go over to uh, 1 Samuel 24, verse 20, the Bible says David... Uh, remember, this is the wonderful story where... Saul is trying to track David down and kill him. And David's hiding in a cave. And, you know, Saul has to go to the bathroom, bless his heart. And he goes into the cave to uh, take care of his business. And he doesn't know that's where David and his men are hiding. And, and as he's there and his coat is laid on the ground, David sneaks up behind him and cuts off a piece of his coat. And Saul doesn't know anything about it. He finishes and goes outside. And uh, after he's back down at his camp, David cries out and he says, Hey! You know, hey, king, aren't you looking for me? He said, didn't somebody tell you I wanted to kill you? He said, well, take a look. And he holds up a piece of the cloth that he's just cut off of Saul's robe. And he says, here, here, look here, king. If I had wanted to kill you, I could have done it just a few seconds ago. I have no desire to kill you. I'm not your enemy. And, of course, Saul, in a moment of repentance, he, he says, you know what, David... You're right, I'm, I'm wrong, I don't know what's got into me. And, and by the way, that was one of Saul, Saul was, was up and down. You know, one minute he's wanting to throttle David and kill him and throwing a spear at him. The next minute he's weeping and saying, you know what, David, I'm so ashamed of myself. You're right, you're, you're right. And, and in that moment, in that moment, Saul makes this statement to David. He says, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his man went up, men went up to the stronghold. So there you see, why did, why did David seek out, why was he sitting there in his palace and decide, is there someone that I can pay homage to, that I can show kindness to of the house of Saul. Why did David think that? Because David remembered his promise. He made a promise to Jonathan, and he made a promise to Saul that I will not cut off your descendants after you. I will show kindness to your descendants. Now, 
That's the historical narrative, but we're talking about a spiritual truth. Why does grace seek after us? You know, the Bible is very clear that, that we don't seek God. The Bible says uh, over in Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 11, that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. And the author of Romans is actually quoting from Psalm 14. And the Bible is making it clear that it is not you and I who are seeking God, but it is God who is seeking us. You know, left to our own devices, most of us have no... Dis- well, let me, let me back up and correct myself. You know, sometimes I'll be riding home and I'll get to thinking about something I said, or if I listen to the record and I'll say, man, I, I didn't know I said that. I, I, I messed up. I misspoke. I, I said something I didn't mean to say. Well, let me go ahead and correct that. None of us are seeking after God. We're not seeking after God. We have no desire to seek God and to find Him. It is God who seeks us. If you have a desire to know God, it is because God is drawing you to Himself. Don't have too high an opinion of yourself and think, well, I'm just a good guy. You know, I'm just a fine woman or a fine man. I, I, you know, I'm just a good person. No, you're not. The Bible says we are all sinners. Every one of us are sinners. And, and in our own nature, we don't desire God, but yet God desires us. And He seeks after us. So a picture of grace, David, representative of God, David desires to find someone that he may bestow grace upon, he may bestow kindness upon, and God is looking to find you and I. The Bible says, but God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in Romans 5, 8 and Luke 19:10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So there's a wonderful picture there that God has promised that He is going to seek us out. God is seeking to find us. So, first of all, there is the promise that the, David made to uh, Jonathan and to Saul. And God is seeking us. And God is seeking us because He has made a promise. You know, in Isaiah 55, 7, the Bible says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly Pardon. And what does God promise in Romans chapter 10? That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you'll believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, God has made a promise to you and I that He will give grace. The Bible says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a promise. A promise from God that He's made to you and He's made to me that we can come to faith through him, just as David made a promise to Saul and he made a promise to Jonathan that he would show grace to their descendants. So God has made a promise to us that our sins can be forgiven, that God will extend grace to us. Well, not only did David reach out to Mephibosheth because of a promise that he made, but there was another reason that David reached out to Mephibosheth. That's hard. Something about speaking Southern that makes it hard to say those big words. That, uh, that There's another reason David reached out to Mephibosheth, not only because he'd made a promise, but I would present to you because of passion. The passionate love that David had for Mephibosheth's father, which was Jonathan. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 18, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. 
And in 2 Samuel 1.26, the Bible says, I am distressed for you. This is David speaking. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now let me just briefly say, in our modern age, there are some that try to take David and Jonathan and turn that love into something beyond the simple love between two men as friends to... Uh, you know, excuse whatever behavior that they might want to engage in. But I assure you, my friend, David and Jonathan had a love that was not romantic. It was the love as the love of two friends. You know, there's something about it. I'll just speak as a man here. You know, my goodness, I love my wife, and, and I hope you love your wife too, or, you know, your girlfriend or whoever, whatever female companion you may have. But, you know, there's something about men getting together and just that male bond. You know, that, that, that there's no, uh, you know, it, it always gets a little, uh, you know, when women get involved, I'm sorry, but it gets complicated. It gets complicated. Uh, but, you know, men, we're pretty simple creatures, right? Now, you women are very intelligent, very smart, and beautiful, and all that. You kind of blow our minds, and y'all get involved. We start scratching our head. We don't really know what to do. But, you know, just get two guys together. It's like two cavemen, all right? It's just real simple. You give them a club, you know, and it's a bone to chew on, and we're happy. You know, no problem. It's not very complicated. And, and really, the point I'm making is that Saul and Jonathan had that, uh, they had that love as, as, as two best friends. And they loved one another. They could depend on one another. You know, Jonathan saved David's life. David saved Jonathan's life. And not only had David made a promise where he said, you know, I, I said I would do it, so I'm a man of my word, I'm going to do it. It wasn't where David said, you know, I don't want to, but, but I promise, I promised I would. It's my duty. I've, I've got to do this. No, he wanted to do it because he loved Jonathan. So not only was it a promise David had made, but it was a passionate love that he had for Jonathan. And he says, you know, Jonathan's dead, he's gone, but, but I, I loved him so, and I wonder if there's anybody left of his family that, that I could show a love to, I could show a grace to, to, to show that great love that I had for Jonathan. If I could find one of his sons or, or someone that I could, could show the love that I had for Jonathan, I could show it to him. And my friend, God has not simply made a promise when it comes to grace and, okay, I, I said I would forgive you, but I don't want to. But since I said I would, I guess I have to. The Bible is very clear that God loves us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and I read uh, just a moment ago about Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, uh, the Apostle John says, Here the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the perpetuation or the payment for our sin. So there is a passion. God loves us. You know, God is beyond us. And I, I hesitate to use the word emotion because when we think of emotions, I think sometimes we think kind of in a negative sense because we're so prone... You know, we have a way of saying, you know, you let your emotions get the best of you. Don't, don't react emotionally. You know, you're making decisions emotionally. And generally we mean that in a negative sense. That, you know, don't be carried away and, and make some rash, foolish decision you haven't thought out. But you know, one of the ways that we define God as being perfect is He is perfect in every expression. 
Where do we get our emotions from? God created us. God gave us emotions. The Bible uses words that we would think of as emotions, such as love or anger, to refer that God has these, quote, emotions. But God is perfect in His expression of what we are often imperfect in our expressions of. God has emotion. And God is perfect in those emotions. And, and remember, I've often said that you've heard me preach and others, no doubt, that love is much, much more than an emotion. But love does involve emotion. I mean, my goodness, you know, everybody wants their spouse to get a little emotional every once in a while, right? Now, you don't want them to be so emotional that, you know, you can't talk with them. And I'll just stop right there and move right on very quickly. Uh, but you do want your spouse to have a little bit of emotion, a little passion, you know, about your relationship. And God, my friend, rest assured, is passionate about you and about me. God loves us. He loves us, the Bible says, with an everlasting love. So why did David go out in, in search of Mephibosheth to show him grace? Because he made a promise. Why does God go out in search of us? Because He promised He would. But why else did David go out in search of Mephibosheth? Because he had a passionate love for Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And why does God go out in search of us? Because He has a passionate love for us. We are His creation. We're the sheep of His pasture. You know, we are the ones that He made in His own image. God loves us and He cares for you and for me. So, grace seeks us and we see that in this story of Mephibosheth. But... Not only does that is the reason why grace seeks us, but who does grace seek? Well, notice in verse number 3, the Bible says, Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Well, we are introduced in this chapter to Mephibosheth. And remember, we've already saw how Mephibosheth was crippled. He was crippled when the nurse dropped him, fleeing after Saul and his father had been killed. And think about in a palace. Think about in a palace. David is the king. And no doubt when you were going to be interviewed to work in the palace, maybe they wanted needed some more help serving tables, No doubt you had to come in, and and just like it is today, you know, they wanted the best and the brightest and the most beautiful, the most talented. That was the top job in the nation, in the kingdom, to work in the palace, to be in the palace. And and no doubt they screened them very closely. You know, it's always very, uh, you know, impressive to look at a ceremony on television, maybe at the White House, uh, there in the Capitol, and you, you have the Marine Guards and... And uh, the honor, honor guards are always standing outside the palace. The palace, <laughs> standing outside the White House. Uh, you know when uh, when the visiting dignitaries come, and they, you know those men have had. They didn't just get out of boot camp, and they said, "Hey, okay, let's draw lots and see who goes to the White House this week." I mean, they've been chosen especially for that task because of their expertise and uh, all the things that would make them a great soldier. So. You know, to think about someone coming to the palace, it typically we would think of the best and the brightest. But David, he goes in search of someone and they tell him, well, you know, there is one, but I'm not sure you really uh, would want this guy. You know, this guy, he's he's crippled. He can't walk. I mean, he's, he's crippled and he lives a long way away from here. 
Well, I think about when Jesus began to walk the earth. Notice what the Pharisees said about Him in Matthew chapter 9. It said, uh, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Better, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So David goes out and he finds a crippled boy, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And that is who he's going to choose to bring to the palace. And when we talk about grace here, who does grace seek after? Not the best, not the brightest. Paul says that God often chooses those that are the despised. Even when Jesus walked on the earth, he spent his time with the despised. Even his disciples, you know, remember uh, Matthew was a tax collector, a despised person. Peter was prone to emotional outbursts. I mean, you go down the list and, and his disciples were not the best and the brightest. He chose many uh, who would not have been chosen by the world. And so often God does that. God's grace comes out to those who are in most need of grace. You know, if you go to the emergency room, we've all been in the emergency room, unfortunately. But if you go to the emergency room, on a Friday night or a Saturday night, you know, you, you walk in and, you know, you see those people with masks, you know, you sit down and you think, well, I wasn't sick when I, if I wasn't sick when I come in here, I will be sick when I leave. Because, you know, there's one hacking on the left and here's one, hey, somebody just went to the bathroom and threw up on the, on the right side of you and, and you're like, man, it, this place full of sick people. It's the emergency room. Absolutely, it's full of sick people. Well, you know, sometimes we come to church and we look around and, and uh, you said, look, Yonner sitting over there. My goodness, you believe they was at church? You know what I heard they did last week? You know, my goodness, look over there. Look, look, look over there. It's the emergency room. It's the place where sinners come. It's the place where grace is preached about. Where forgiveness is sin is proclaimed. So my friend, if there's any place a sinner should show his or her face, it should be church. Now, that don't mean you have to make them the preacher. You know, that don't mean, you know, you have to elevate them to some position of authority until they make their life right with God. But listen, a sinner should come to church. That We're all sinners. You know, some are just repentant sinners. And by the way, you've heard me say this as we go through the life of David. You look at David and you look at Saul. David, the, there was only one real difference that I see between David and Saul. You could argue about the things Saul did bad. They were not any worse. You could even argue they weren't quite as bad. I never, I don't think Saul ever, you know, committed murder, killed a woman's husband, you know, so he could marry the, the wife. But David did. But you know the big difference between David and Saul that I see? David was a sinner, but he was a repentant sinner. Anytime David, God confronted David about his sin, David... David's, you know, that beautiful Psalm 51, we call it the, the repentant psalm. It says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Lord, cleanse me from my sin. 
David knew how to repent. Listen, if your goal is to live a perfect life, let me warn you, you're going to fail. It's good to try. We should all try to do the very best we can. But if you're going to learn anything in life, learn this one thing. Learn how to repent. If you will learn how to repent, my friend, you can make it. But if you're stubborn and hard-headed and refuse to change and refuse to repent, there is no hope for you, my friend. You're a Saul. You're, you are a Saul and you'll be cast out. But if you, you can be a David and have a checkered past and get into all kind of trouble, but if you still know how to bend your knee, and I don't mean just, just simply, you know, in some way to, to get out of trouble, but I'm talking about from the heart, repent. If you know how to repent, my friend, there's hope for you. And so God goes in search of the sinner. He goes in search of the sinner. And David went in search of Mephibosheth, who was this crippled boy, to pour out his grace upon. Well, where did he find him at, quickly? Notice it says he found him in Lodabar. Now, if you take the meaning of Lodabar, it means no pasture and no ability to get nourishment. And that's certainly where God goes in search of us. He goes to find us where we're out there. You know, so many folks are trying to find peace in life today uh, with pleasure and power and all the things that the world offers. And, you know, everything's at your fingertips now. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, going in the video store when they had video stores. They're all about gone now. And I can remember when I was in my 20s, you know, I, I went to the Douglas video and I was looking for uh, a video and I couldn't find it. And I saw some people go in a, back, a door that went to the back room there. And I said, well, it might be back there. So I went back there and it was kind of dark. <laughs> and I started looking on the shelf and there's a woman that had a few pieces of clothing on. Not, not, not many. I said, okay, wrong room. Wrong room. Well, and before my generation, you know, you, had to, you went in the, the store and it was magazines. You had to go around asking the back, hey, hey, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll have to go get them for you. You know, don't have to do that anymore. All the things that our worst natures try to draw us toward are at your finger. Right here. Right here. Right here. At your fingertips. You don't have to go to the dark room anymore. You don't have to go to the back room. At your fingertips. And how many people are being destroyed because it is so easy. It is so easy to fall into trouble now. You, you used to have to try. It was a little hard. You know, you had to really want to. You could do it, but it was, it was difficult. Now it's so easy. It's so easy. And so many are out there in that place with no nourishment. They're trying to find rest for their soul, you know, in relationships and things, and they just can't find it. And God goes there to that place. He goes to that place of barrenness, that place of no nourishment and no pasture where people are trying to find purpose and peace and he goes out in search i love what isaiah says over in isaiah uh, chapter 55 he says ho everyone who thirst come to the waters and you that have no money come buy and eat yes come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul will live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And again, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and He inclined me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock 
and established my goings. And He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Who does grace seek? He seeks those who need it the most. Where does He seek them? He seeks them out in that place of barrenness where they're trying to find purpose and peace for their soul. But what does grace do when it finds us? Look there in verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Well, let me go back up. I think I mentioned in verse 5, he brought him out of the land of Lodabar. And of course, when Meshibbeth got there, he prostrated himself before David. And then David says, listen, I'm going to make you who will, you will dine at my table. I'm going to take you and give you everything uh, that your grandfather Saul had. I'm going to give you the land. And I think about what the Bible says in John 10, 3. It says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Mephibosheth, when he first finds out he's going to see David, he had to think, well, this is it. I've been hiding for a long time, and and I've, I've raised a bit of a family. I've got a son of my own now. But they finally found me. They finally found me. And he says, you know, I guess I'll just go and, and whatever happens, happens. And, and he gets there and he prostrates himself before the king, not knowing what's going to happen. And, and David says, don't be afraid. I brought you here because I love your father. And I'm going to give you all the land that your grandfather had. I'm going to restore all of that to you. And I'm going to bless you. And I think about the second verse of Amazing Grace. You know, the first thing that has to happen before you can experience God's grace, you have to understand that you're in need of God's grace. An unrepentant sinner has never found God's grace. The only ones that find the grace of God is a sinner who is repentant. A sinner who recognizes that I've transgressed the law of God. I stand in danger of the judgment of God. I stand before God. He has the right to judge me. But only those sinners that come to God repentant, and that's what that second verse talks about of amazing grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. That's that recognition that I, I should fear the fact that I have disobeyed God and I stand condemned before Him. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Mephibosheth is there before the king. He's no doubt shaking. He is afraid. But David's grace poured out to Mephibosheth, he raises his fears. He says, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you all that your father had and all that your grandfather had. You're going to sit at my table. And you know, that's what the author of Amazing Grace, the reason he wrote that hymn, he was overwhelmed the fact that God would, would put aside his sin, would embrace him as his son, and would bring him into his family and would pour out his peace and his love and his grace upon him. And old John Newton, who had been a slave trader and a wicked immoral man, he wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, as a hymn of praise to God for forgiveness and for peace. And you see that in all the words of that great hymn, that expression of gratitude, of amazement, that God would forgive me, that God would grant me peace, even though I've offended and done so many terrible things, yet God has embraced me and He's brought me in and made me one of His own. And I I love the way He puts it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." 
So that's what happens to Mephibosheth. He is saved from physical danger by David's grace, and you and I are saved from spiritual danger by God's grace. And lastly, grace satisfies. Look there in verse 9. And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. There we see the grace of David satisfying and meeting every need that Mephibosheth has from that moment until he breathed his last breath. He never had to worry again. And in a spiritual sense, that is what God's grace does for us. Just a couple of passages. Paul said when he asked God to remove that thorn in the flesh. Remember Paul had that thorn in the flesh. He said, if you'll just get rid of this God. And remember, you know, you can't say Paul didn't have faith. Paul had laid hands on people. They had been healed. Paul had, had done so many miraculous works. So Paul certainly had faith. So he's praying for his own problem. He says, remove this thorn, O Lord. And you know what God told him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And perhaps no better example of God's provision for His people, for His sheep, than the wonderful psalm that David himself penned, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Grace seeks us. Grace saves us. And grace satisfies us. Mephibosheth, he looked at the king, and the king said, Mephibosheth, Come and dine. Come and dine. Supper's ready. I think David was a southerner. He said supper. Supper's ready. Supper's ready. The meal is ready. You know, someone wrote an old hymn that I love that kind of sums that up. Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites His chosen people. Come and dine. With his manna he doth feed and supplies our every need. Oh, tis sweet to sup with Jesus all the time. Come and dine, the Master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. 
God's grace. A wonderful picture in the story of King David and the crippled son of Jonathan. Come and die. God's grace is open to you and it's open to me as Tyler comes and gives us a hymn of invitation this morning. You're here today, you know, the reason that we come together is to share the love of Jesus and to share the grace of God. And what the gospel is all about, it is a message to those who have wandered from God's way, have wandered from God's love, and that message is come and dine. There's a meal prepared. God wants to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That cannot be satisfied with anything on this planet. No relationship, no substance, no position. Only your Creator can give you that fulfillment that where you feel that, you know, I, I'm doing what I was created to do. I'm fellowshipping with my Creator. You feel like there's a piece missing. There is a piece missing. It's God. So if you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to come and do that this morning. Maybe you want to come pray. You just obey the Holy Spirit as we stand and sing. Amazing grace.